do you sort out the so-called jargon from real-world practices that work? Do the members of your organization find some business advice utterly confusing? Welcome to the 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman. In this program, we set the record straight and in terms that people at any level of business and technology can understand. Now, here is your host, Sam Holzman. Hello, Sam Holzman here. Uh, Welcome back to the 2020s Enterprise. Uh, This edition, we'll be talking about big data, a very, very popular topic. Uh, Data is everywhere. Uh, But as you know from the uh, uh, headline of this particular episode, it says big data and good data, which we'll get into a little bit. There is a difference. There is a big difference between those two and how to get there to the concepts of of enterprise architecture, and in the lead up to this, I uh, I put a quote in in the uh, in the beginning of the uh, activities that I was doing here from a very prestigious consultant named Tom Davenport. Uh, Tom is a uh, a noted consultant in business and technology, and this is a direct quote uh, from one of the things that he was doing. He said when he was doing some work with American Airlines, um, they told me that they had eleven different usages of the term airport and he continues on he says a frequent traveler on their planes I was initially a bit concerned about this but when they explained it the proliferation of meetings made sense they said that cargo people view any place that you pick up or drop off cargo as an airport the maintenance people view any place that you can fix an airplane as an airport the people who work with air transportation authorities relied on a list of international airports. What I said was that scared me. I'm also a frequent flyer, uh, and that scared the bejesus out of me because what's happening today is we're trying to take these disparate databases, this disparate data, and mush them together. (laughs) That's a technical term. It's not a technical term, of course, uh, to come up with new insights And the phrase that we tend to use is the concept of big data. But as you can see here, there's different definitions of the word airport. What are we going to get when we put all that stuff together? I know that I want to make sure that the pilot flying the airplane knows which version of the word is being used, especially if I'm on the airplane, to be a little selfish. But how do you get that unique meaning when you essentially have running data structures? Good data comes before big data, and we're going to explore how we get there. And it requires the concept of enterprise architecture, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. I also want to thank uh, those of you that have emailed me with comments and suggestions. Really, really appreciate the feedback. Um, I'm kind of happy, frankly, and the feedback we're getting. People are are looking at this, and as the phrase goes, this show is about figuring out sense from nonsense. And the phrase that I always use is one of the great things about the Internet that we have out there is anybody can write anything about anything. And one of the problems with the Internet is anybody can write anything about anything. So how do you sort out the uh, confusion that's out there? We're trying to bring some method to the madness out there. And again, the comments that we're getting from um, some of our listeners is is comforting. They're saying, this is 
kind of a neat thing, and I'm very, very happy about that. And uh, hopefully we can continue to bring you some insights uh, in every one of our shows. So as we tend to do, I want to start off with some some news out there that may be of interest to you. And this first article is really troubling to me because it's not getting much attention, and I don't know actually why. And it has to do with a company called First American Financial. And um, they essentially do some mortgage document processing. And the article says an estimated, hopefully you're sitting down, 885 million, let me repeat that number, 885 million digitized documents for mortgage deals dating back to 2003 have been exposed by a first American financial corporation. Now, (laughs) this is 2019, 16 years. I know in my little world, I believe I've had approximately three or four different mortgages processed for one reason or another. And so if we look at the number of human beings in just the United States, uh, I'm just going to round up a number, 300 million people, divide by approximately two, 150 million or so. Uh, I'll use the phrase households. And let's just leave that number there. It doesn't matter if it's 100 million or 150 million. Here we have 885 million documents that are out there. The chances of every one of you listening to this show that ever that has ever had a mortgage has been affected by this is pretty close to 100%. Now, what data Remember, this is about data in in this uh, episode here. What data was exposed? Bank account numbers, bank statements, mortgage records, tax records, social security numbers, wire transfer receipts, driver's license images. (laughs) Probably the only thing that wasn't is blood type and, and what you had for lunch yesterday, you know, that's out there. But as I said, what's amazing is how little press this seems to have gotten. And this exposure underscores the need for a comprehensive approach to securing systems and networks was the comment in the article. That's too late. That's too late. We have to think about security, data security, as the beginning. After we already have something built, it's too late to put padlocks on there. We can put all the locks that we want on there. But as the phrase goes, the hackers only have to be right one time. We have to be right every time. And we'll get into complexity in just a moment that's out there. Firewalls, anti-malware solutions, other security-specific controls are not sufficient to reduce unwanted exposure. And that's not my quote. That's, That's a quote from a gentleman that is the chief data science for an organization called Rapid7 Labs, a security company. Again, that's not my quote. So I want to repeat here. Firewalls, anti-malware solutions, other security-specific controls. The typical IT response to these things, let's put a lock on the door, isn't going to do the job. And this is very important. And what's even more important Uh, aggravating to me, if I can use the phrase aggravating, is who are the victims? First data? No, you and I. We're the victims of this thing, and we have no idea what that exposure is. So, of course, the answer we get is the following. Well, it's your problem, Sam. Uh, Monitor your credit report. 
put a freeze on all your uh, credit card applications. Uh, use tools provided by your financial institution. Well, the horse is already out of the barn, you know, that's there. But I wanted to bring this to your attention because, as I said, I was, I was really kind of surprised by this, especially since this isn't the first time you and I have been affected by something like this. Two years ago, 2017, if you remember, Equifax, one of the three major consumer credit reporting agencies, 145 million consumers had their records potentially hacked, including social security numbers. Why am I mentioning that? Here's an Equifax hack with a social security number. What did we just talk about with essentially First America Financial? Social security numbers. We can now do a data match. We can take data structures from different sources, not you and I, but the evildoers. (laughs) You and I can do it too, I guess. We can put some stuff together and start getting profiles. This is what you and I have to start recognizing about the concepts of big data. This is an issue. It's not engineered. Let me repeat. It's not engineered. It's being hacked together. Now, let me forget the word hacked for a moment. It is being put together. It is being merged without understanding what these things are. Let's go two years before the Equifax Act, Act uh, hack, excuse me, if you remember. Office of Personnel Management, our federal government. Sensitive data there for all the, some of the federal employees. Fingerprints, medical histories. Oh, my goodness. And the issue, again, is that the organizations that these breaches are occurring, not much, not much happening there. And here's the real aggravation, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to really get aggravated, there's no reason to get real aggravated, but there is a reason to get a little aggravated, and that's that a study that was done last year said that Equifax, I want to mention again, that had the data breach, is actually profiting from this. And you know why? Because they're charging you and I a fee to freeze some of their credit reporting. Not all people, but a lot of them. And Wakefield Research reported that about $1.4 billion, $1.4 billion has been generated for these credit agencies, including Equifax, to fix the problem that they caused. Isn't that kind of neat? No. <laughs> okay, but but people are starting to get some attention. You and I have to push a little bit harder. Uh, Moody's, the um, rating service for you know corporations, cut the outlook of Equifax. And this is the first time a company has been downgraded financially because of a cybersecurity incident. So somebody is starting to pay attention. Okay. And companies losing your data and my data may lead to, lead to excuse me, real cost. Now, what happened to First America? Their shares fell 2%. Now, it's going to go up and down. We know that, up and down and up and down. But we have to recognize that this is a big problem. Data is the asset 
And that's, of course, something that you and I are recognizing more and more. Data is an asset. It's just like you handing somebody $10 bill. It's an asset and it has value. And your social security number and your date of birth and your blood type and your whatever it is, that has a value, a financial value to somebody. And it tends to be, unfortunately, in some cases for evildoers. And sometimes it's for good purposes, you know, that are out there. It's not just the evildoers. But you and I have to recognize, as I said on a previous episode, that the data belongs to me. If it's your data, it belongs to you. When it comes to technology, one of the reasons this is happening is because of the growing complexity that's out there. And there's a phrase that I use in our uh, working sessions in our consulting practice. We need to architect before we implement. And the phrase that is commonly used in the physical world is we need to engineer before we manufacture. Now, that's sort of a given in the physical world. When you're trying to build a 100-story building, when you're trying to build an automobile, you're going to engineer and then manufacture. But in the world of technology, the most common computer system lifecycle development is construct, maintain, maintain, maintain. I'm only joking a little bit that's out there. And this is where the complexity goes in. And this was recently witnessed at Target, Target department stores. And there was an article written in the Wall Street Journal by a Sarah Castellanos. I apologize. I do not know who Sarah is. I'm, I'm just grabbing this article from the Wall Street Journal because I read this thing with a little bit of disbelief as to what was being said here as the underlying cause. And so the article talks about technology maintenance is getting more complicated because systems are interconnected interconnected, excuse me, causing ripple effects when problems arise. That is 100% correct. And it's a physics problem. If you have two systems connect to each other, we have essentially a pathway in either direction. When we have three systems, we have six different possible connections. When we have four systems, we have four times three times two times one, 24 possible connections. And whoever is connecting those things up needs to recognize that every one of those paths have to be understood that's there. This is a geometric increase in complexity. And what I I mean by that is, let's say we have 20 systems that we need to connect. The number goes up to about 20 million possible connections that are there. And so when we look at this, we start recognizing that it is not a brick and mortar in an IT issue. It has to be about building a baseline for addressing and managing change. A baseline for addressing and managing change. And if you do not have that, you're going to possibly get into problems. It has nothing to do with brick and mortar connections. And it has nothing to do with multiple vendors It has to do with a baseline for addressing and managing change. And that is called enterprise architecture, architecting the enterprise before you implement the technology solution. And so this particular concept becomes the baseline for addressing and managing change. What do you do? You look at the baseline, 
you change the baseline and then you change the physical object. In technology terms, you look at the baseline, analyze that baseline, and you change the technology or the system that's there. That is the engineering discipline that we're looking at. And one of the other things we need to mention is there is a difference between integration and interfacing. And when you have two of these disparate computer systems that are tied together, they are not integrated. They are interfaced. And every interface point has to be analyzed to make sure that it is correct, that you understand what is going in and what is coming out. So the more of these that you have, the more agility that you may have, but the more, essentially, chance of penetration. So, for example, in your house, if you have 10 doors, you have 10 entry points, which is great, potentially, but also it's a problem, (laughs) okay? If you have one, that's an issue in one direction, but in the other area, it's probably more concerned. So it's, excuse me, secured. So you have this balance in the act going on uh, that's out there. So all of this has to do with data, big data, how to figure out how to get big data, which the prerequisite would be good data, and what would you do as an organization, your technology organization or your business people with your technologist, to actually move from the present state of activities to something that more is understanding that change is going to be continuous and we need a baseline for addressing and managing change. Thank you for listening to our first segment. We're going to take a quick break here and then we're going to talk about big data, good data, and how to make things better. See you back here in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening. Is your organization in the Internet age when those around you are moving into the information age? Are your hallway conversations filled with words and phrases like blockchain, AI, VR, cloud computing, and micro this and that? Are you interested in bringing some method to the madness? Then talk to us. Through years of consulting with clients all over the world, the Pinnacle Business Group and Architecture's Center of Excellence have developed an understanding of what makes a consultant-client relationship work. And this understanding comes to every engagement. The Pinnacle Business Group assists organizations in solving their business and system challenges with its unique, proven approaches, bringing teams of business and system personnel together to jointly define business and system requirements. The teams are led through a series of facilitated activities to provide innovative solutions to their business and system challenges. We look forward to hearing from you. Visit PinnacleBusinessGroup.com. You are listening to The 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman. We welcome questions and comments about the program via email to sam at eacoe.org. That's sam at eacoe.org. Now, back to The 2020s Enterprise. Welcome back. And we're talking about the concept of big data, what that means, Good data, which should be a prerequisite to big data, 
and what to do about this as a baseline. We call that concept enterprise architecture, a baseline for addressing managing change. Now, some of us may have a belief that this concept of big data is relatively new, and it is relatively new in the technology world it's in. But in doing some research on this topic, I'm going to give you a date here that I think is sort of the first time this concept of big data was actually explored. And it was in 1936. Yep, 1936. Of course, uh, there was no internet. (laughs) There was no computers. Uh, But what was going on in 1936? Uh, There was a election in the United States. And uh, it was kind of an interesting election. Because at 1936, there was a Republican candidate. His name was Alfred Landon. And he was running against President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And so that was 1936. And this magazine called the Literary Digest was responsible for forecasting the results. So that's 1936, forecasting the results. So what they did was, the way to communicate with people in those days was through the postal service. So they conducted a postal opinion poll, and at the time, this was an astonishing ambition. They wanted to reach 10 million people through the mail. And at that time, it was a quarter of the people in the United States that were eligible to vote. So you can imagine the deluge of replies. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine <laughs> how many of these things were coming in. And the scale of the task, everything was essentially manual. And what they said was in late August, they said next week, the week after they, they started getting some information in, the first answers from these 10 million things was going to go out there. This was going to be their first prediction, um, you know, that was there. They were seeing the number of, of responses coming in and things like that. And they went through, you know, an elaborate approach to make sure that all the ballots were marked correctly. They actually talked about not double checking, but triple checking, verification, five times cross-classified to make sure everything was correct and totaled. And at that particular time, they had 2.4 million responses in the first two months. By the way, that's astounding when you think about that response rate that's there. And they made a conclusion at that particular point in time. They said that uh, candidate Landon, essentially the person that was running against uh, President Roosevelt, uh, was going to essentially win by a convincing margin, 55% to 41%. 55% for the uh, the uh, the person that was looking for that particular position, the Republican Landon, versus 41% for President Roosevelt, and then a few voters for a third-party candidate. Now, what actually happened, I think some of you know, if you've read a little bit up about history, uh, President Roosevelt crushed Landon, and this, these are crushing numbers when it comes to politics, 61% versus 37%. You know, that was there. Now, there's an interesting little side note here, and this is all about big data. To add to the Literary Digest problems that they were having, there was also somebody else that was working on this. And it was a gentleman named George Gallup, 
of course, everybody knows now the Gallup poll. But he went out there and he looked at something different. He actually used engineering and mathematical rigor to do the polling. And what he did was essentially come up with a much closer understanding of the final vote was, and he forecasted a comfortable margin of victory for President Roosevelt. And what Mr. Gallup understood was something that the Literary Digest did not understand. And that was when it comes to data, size isn't everything. Big data is what everybody's talking about now. Let's remember what Mr. Gallup said and his results proved. When it comes to data, size isn't everything. Opinion polls are based on samples of the voter population at large. The opinion pollsters need to deal with two issues. You and I in our enterprises need to deal with two issues. Sample error, in other words, where are we getting our data, and sample bias. Sample error and sample bias. In other words, is our sample biased in one way or another, the things that we're getting? Now, sample error reflects the risk that, purely by chance, a randomly chosen sample do not reflect the true view of the population. And that may occur. And the phrase that you hear there, commonly nowadays, is called a margin of error. A thousand interviews is a large enough sample for many purposes. And Mr. Gallup was reported to conduct 3,000 interviews. Let me give you those numbers again. With science, design of experiments is what it's generally called. A thousand samples is as good as anything else. As a matter of fact, it may be even better because it's actually designed. It's not the quantity. It's the quality good data that's there. Now, you may say, well, (laughs) if 3,000 interviews are good, why not 2.4 million? And that answer is that the sampling error, remember I said there's two things, sample error and sample bias, is far more dangerous, uh, excuse me, has a far more dangerous component, and that's sampling bias. So we've got two things. One is error and one is bias. What sample bias? It's when the sample isn't randomly chosen. Bias. You can prove anything. Uh, We have a, a colleague in our organization who's a statistician, uh, and he says, give us the variable and the ranges, and I'll get you the answer that you need. That's kind of a scary thing <laughs> you know, that he says there. And it's because the sample is essentially you know, is biased. Now, sampling bias is simply that whatever you're looking at has some kind of inherent flaw in it in what you're collecting that's there. And what George Gallup did, and still the Gallup poll tries to do, is to take massive amount of energy to make sure that there's an unbiased sample because he knew that 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 was far more important than the concepts of big data. And this big data craze threatens to be the same thing that you're seeing from those polling days now because data sets are so messy that's out there that it's hard to figure out what biases there are. And because they're so large, 
some analysts seem to decide that the sampling problem isn't worth worrying about. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is. You know, it is. And what we're essentially talking about here is massive issues. And those are called big data problems that we have. And there are some serious, serious, serious issues. Yet we keep looking at it because it seems so simple. And the first one that came to light here more recently, as far as big data issues, was a number of years ago when Google announced what everyone considered to be a massively remarkable achievement, where they were able to essentially, without a single medical checkup, figure out and track the spread of influenza in the United States. Some of you may remember that. I said, oh my gosh. And the theory at the time was they can do this because they had all of the possible data in the universe. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think most of us are sound mind and body. What's the first bias that you're detecting when Google's using Google data? This may sound so simple to you. Well, Google data comes from Google users, and Google users are a biased sample. <laughs> Duh, as Homer Simpson says. It's so obvious, but we want to believe that all you have to do is get this latest, greatest technological magic, and all the problems are going to go away. But the fundamental science issues, ex design of experiment issues, engineering issues, are still there. And I love to sell, tell the people, talk to people when it comes to the physical world. You may know, you know what? You may not like the law of gravity, but gravity doesn't care. And so there's some fundamental rules that we have, we have to recognize. And these rules started essentially being proven out, as I mentioned to you, in the 30s. And yet we keep seeing be doing the same thing again. And so Google put together what they call the Google flu trends. And it was kind of amazing to people. And oh, by the way, for those of you that uh, are looking for that right now, um, Google quietly shut down that program a number of years ago. <laughs> I have nothing against Google, by the way. They're, they're an excellent company, you know, that's there. But we do have to remember that the laws of nature, the laws of physics, the law of gravity, so to speak, still work still need to be followed. And when it comes to big data, unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of organizations are getting false positives and false negatives because of these things, um, you know, that's there. And that's what we have to recognize. And so basically what we're talking about here is that good data is required before big data. And when you have a number of different databases or different data structures that were not engineered to work together from its start, we have to do something about that. And you just can't mush those data structures together. And that's really the thing that we need to recognize. The data is data. And, you know, that's, that's about it. It doesn't care 
you and I have to care. And one of the premier individuals out there in the world of data is a gentleman named Bill Inman. And uh, Bill um, is credited with coming up with a concept of a data warehouse, some kind of a equivalency of a physical warehouse where you actually store data that's there. That was one of his concepts. Brilliant, brilliant researcher and theoretician and practitioner, by the way, um, you know, that's out there. And he recently wrote, I'm chuckling, an article. I'm going to just say the title. Send in the clowns. Sometimes Bill's a little bit direct. And the reason he did this was there was an, organiz- there's an, out- an organization out there um, that has essentially said, we don't have to do this warehousing stuff. We don't have to have good data. We just got all the stuff going on there. And from the very beginning of Bill's work, he had resistance to what he was doing. In other words, engineering before you implement, if I can use that phrase. And as he said in his, you know, his articles and his work, he says, the first resistance came from IBM. Then it became then from Oracle. And then from Microsoft. And then more recently from Cloudera, which is one of the new um, technology or more uh, newer organizations, um, you know, that, you know, that's out there talking about, uh, you know, data. So the article is about another organization, and I don't know these organizations named Encorda, and that was the, what, what the article was about. Again, saying that data warehouse isn't important. We don't have to do that stuff there. And he gives an example, and again, I want to make it clear, I don't know the organizations. I'm just talking to you about data, and this comes from some pretty learned sources. And he gives us an example. He says an organization has a computer system, has three or four computer systems. Remember what we talked about in American Airlines. They have 11 different definitions of airport, and they may be in different computer systems. And in one application, Bill says, application A, they represent gender, human beings, as male and female. Those words, male and female. Another application they have represent gender, for whatever reason, as one and zero. Another application represents gender as X and Y. And everyone decides that what we're going to do is to represent this as M and F, the letter M and F. Well, how are you going to do that? The first thing you have to do is to recognize that you have various representations and what an X is equivalent to, what a Y is equivalent to, what a 1 is equivalent to, what a 0 is equivalent to, what the word male is equivalent to, what the word female is equivalent to, and what M and F is. And then you can put all of that stuff together in an engineered manner. And once again, we're talking about a baseline for addressing and managing change. And then from that point on, you may be able to essentially move forward in your consolidation of these disparate things. So when you want to move from four to one, whatever reason, or you want to take conclusions across multiple activities, you have to do essentially this work before. You engineer before you implement. You engineer before you implement. 
And the other thing we need to look at is how do you translate some of these words that essentially have disparate meanings, um, you know, that's, you know, that's out there. The concept of a gender, the concept of an employee, the concept of a customer, all of these words that we're talking about may have different meanings. And all of these words, when we chat with you know, organizations about working with them, we call those words a table of contents. Now, why do we call it a table of contents? Because they're just words. And what you're looking for behind those words is content. What do you mean by? Okay? So, this is the key. You have the table of contents, which is a phrase, a word, and then you have the definition of that word. And in the case of what I just talked about here of, of merging three or four different um, uh, sources together of gender information, you have to make sure that an M and an X and a 1 and a male word all mean the same thing. And there is no artificial intelligence or anything else that's out there that's going to tell you the semantic, the meaning change that's there. Is it the same thing? Somebody has to, quote, look at it. Now, maybe one day, now it's been going on since 1936, so maybe wait a few more days. Maybe one day some mechanical device will be able to do this. But this is why we're getting some of this bias that's there. Now, there is a solution for this. There is a way to approach it. And it's through the concepts of enterprise architecture and a cocktail conversation word that we're going to talk about uh, after our uh, uh, break coming up here. And that word is reify or reification. Ooh, just imagine going to your next cocktail conversation and saying, uh, you know, we're uh, working through a reification process here in our enterprise. <laughs> it's a real word. We're going to be talking about how we take these concepts and transform them into a logical structure that can be implemented with a high degree of confidence that it's done in an accurate and traceable manner. This is Sam Holzman. You're listening to the 2020s Enterprise. We're just going to take a quick break. And we'll see you back here in just a few minutes. Thank you for listening. Is your organization in the Internet age when those around you are moving into the information age? Are your hallway conversations filled with words and phrases like blockchain, AI, VR, cloud computing, and micro this and that? Are you interested in bringing some method to the madness? Then talk to us. Through years of consulting with clients all over the world, the Pinnacle Business Group and Architecture's Center of Excellence have developed an understanding of what makes a consultant-client relationship work. And this understanding comes to every engagement. The Pinnacle Business Group assists organizations in solving their business and system challenges with its unique, proven approaches, bringing teams of business and system personnel together to jointly define business and system requirements. The teams are led through a series of facilitated activities to provide innovative solutions to their business and system challenges. We look forward to hearing from you. Visit PinnacleBusinessGroup.com. You are listening to The 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman. We welcome questions and comments about the program via email to sam at eacoe.org. That's sam at eacoe.org. Now, back to The 2020s Enterprise. 
Welcome back. In this episode of the 2020s Enterprise, we're talking about big data, good data, and how to get there through the concepts of enterprise architecture. Now, what's happening in the world of, of technology and software is there is a transformation going on to what we refer to as version 3.0 of information technology. And in a previous episode of the 2020s Enterprise, I described these three concepts. Uh, one is called make to order, the other is called provide from stock, and the most mature is essentially what's called assemble to order. Now, what do I mean by assemble to order? Picture for just a moment, uh, you walk up to a salad bar and it has 20 different ingredients in it. You've got the romaine lettuce, you've got the iceberg lettuce, uh, you have tomatoes and onions and garbanzo beans and whatever, whatever those things are. And you walk up and literally, as the phrase goes, assemble to order. Now, if you do the mathematical combinations of how many different types of salads that you can make, when you have the individual ingredients sitting there, you come up with a startling number of about 20 million different combinations that are there. And your life and my life is surrounded by the concept of this maturity called assemble to order. Walk into a Home Depot or Lowe's, one of the big box stores, assemble to order. They've got the individual elements and you assemble to order. You've got the lumber department, you've got the window department, you've got the door department, you've got the shingle department. Walk into a grocery store. You've got the canned green beans and you've got the uh, uh, corn. And you go to the uh, dairy section, you have the cheeses and you've got the yogurts and you've got the milk. And you go to the meat section and you have the various meat. You assemble to order. Walk into a restaurant. Same type of thing. You have a menu. The chef doesn't have all those meals prepared, at least I hope not. <laughs> and basically, he or she, the chef, assembles to order what is there. Now, of course, with that, you have some strengths and limitations. And those limitations are, if you ain't got the ingredients, you're going to have an issue, of course, that's there. We understand that. But the phrase agility doesn't come through handcrafting. We can't possibly handcraft our way to agility. It doesn't make any sense. Handcrafting, we need something else, assembly. So just a day or so ago, Volkswagen decided to change things up a little bit. And I want to stress here, I don't have any internal knowledge um, at this point in time as to what Volkswagen is doing. I'm only quoting from some articles that I read. VW steps up software push with its own operating system and software. And this is what VW is quoted as saying. VW's in-house development of software is going to go from 10% internal development to 60% internal development by 2025. This is a massive change in thinking. Almost at the same time I read this article, it turns out that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, has come up with a, a document called Mitigating the Risk of Software Vulnerabilities by Adopting a Secure Software Development Framework. Mitigating the Risk of Software Vulnerabilities by Adapting a Secure Software Development Framework. And the uh, it's in draft form right now. It's, 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 out there, it's out there for comment. It was just issued uh, last week. 
And in the beginning of this paper, it says, and I'm quoting directly, quote, there are two primary audiences for this white paper. The first are software producers, whether they're commercial off-the-shelf packages, COTS, product vendors, government off-the-shelf software developers, custom software developers, regardless of size, sector, or level of maturity. The second uh, 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 audience is you and I, the software consumer, federal government agencies, other organizations. And it continues on. Readers of this document are not expected to be experts in secure software development in order to understand it. But such expertise is required to implement the recommendations. Architect, implement. Architect, human consumable. Implementation, compiler consumable, so to speak. Now, within this document, I was jumping up and down when I got to a specific recommendation that they had. And I don't jump up and down very often. And it was number four. It says, reuse existing well-secured software when feasible instead of duplicating functionality. In other words, build your salad bar equivalency of secured elements and assemble to order rather than handcrafting. Bless you, NIST. This is something that I have been talking about literally for at least two decades And I am thrilled that an organization as prestigious as NIST is saying something very similar. Stop writing software. That's where the vulnerabilities are. We need to assemble software, assemble to order. And each one of these elements has a secured environment that's there. It has been tested and tested and tested. And it has everything that we can possibly have, by the way. Is there 100% guarantees? No. But we do know right now that the hackers have won. I want to repeat here. The hackers have won because all they have to do is find one vulnerability. We have to make sure there aren't any. Now, within this, how do we translate our business intent into something that essentially can be mechanized or put on a computer? And as I said before a break, it has to do with the concepts of reification, fancy schmancy word. And this is part of our uh, methodology at the Enterprise Architecture Center of Excellence and the Business Architecture Center of Excellence, our two arms of our, uh, um, of our organization that's there. And basically what reification is, is essentially movement from, and, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing the, the phrase here, moving from a concept to actually a concrete enablement, implementation. It turns out that there are five transformations, not decompositions, that you and I can do to understand this and do it. And this is not fiction. This is science. And I need to credit somebody that talked to about this, didn't use that word initially, but talked about these concepts many, many years ago. And that gentleman is John Zachman. And John was one of the first people to recognize that there's a series of transformations that are required to move from a concept to an implementation. 
not a series of granularity, more decomposition. And then as the research went on, we started recognizing that there's actually some science also behind this rather than thought processes. And the phrase that sort of unifies this is essentially the concept of reification, which is a process, which an abstract idea. So if I say to you, customer, or I say to you, the concept of an employee, okay, that's a concept that you and I have. Some of us think of various things, the physical being or those types of things that are there. And essentially what we want to do is to turn that into something explicit so that we can actually build a computer system that's there. And it turns out that there are five transformations that are going on. This is the prerequisite for big data. Engineer before you manufacture. And with these five representations, uh, representations, two of them are focused on business understanding and three of them are focused on technology transformation. And in our methodology that uh, we have, you know, to do this, these are explicit. So two of them are understandable by human beings in less than 90 seconds. That's our design criteria. And then three of them are geared toward the implementation, the enablement of those concepts. And briefly, let me describe these. The first one is referred to and generally as, you know, define the business. So what's the concept of a, a customer? What's the concept of an employee? So what's the concept of a, of a customer to a business person or a technology person or a customer? What's the concept of a customer? It's a, I'll use the phrase a human being. It's a human element, you know, that's there. That's what people think about when they think about a customer. They don't think about a computer record, so to speak, or computer entry. Um, they think about a human being in general when it comes to a customer or an employee. Now, of course, there can be variations there. Please notice how important the definition is. Remember the words that I'm using, customer or an employee, are a table of contents. We still need the definition to make sure we understand what that is. Now, the next thing in this concept of reification is referred to as the relationships that are of interest to the business. So let's talk for a moment about the concept of an employee in, a, in an organization. And what relationships would you be interested in as a business person, as a person within the organization? An employee and a desk, an employee and a chair, an employee and a salary, an employee and a parking place, an employee and a skill, an employee and a location, an employee, those types of things. Those are all human understandable. Now, why is that important? Once again, if we have the concept of an employee in one area that doesn't have that level of understanding and specificity, and we have another person that decides or another data structure, another department or another division, whatever you want to call it, that decides to use an employee in a different manner, you can see why big data failures are going to be there. So we have to have essentially that understanding. From that, we go to what we refer to as a technology neutral representation. Now we're transforming from the business side to the technology side. So there's a bridge relationship that sort of is the transformation, the translator from the business intent to the technology. 
That's the third level of reification. The fourth one is what we refer to as technology neutral. Now we're talking about giving the technologists an understanding of the type of technology that they're going to be using. Not the brand yet. Not the brand yet. So for those of you that are comfortable with these phrases, a relational database or hierarchical database or a network database, a class of technology is what we're talking about. So we have the business concept, the business relationships, the technology neutral, then we have the technology specific, and then we have essentially the solution specific. So for example, when it comes to relational databases, if some of you are comfortable with this, it would be IBM's database product or Oracle's product or whoever it was going to be. And in the good old days, we used to call this late binding. In other words, the technology, whether it's in the cloud or whether it's in your enterprise or whether it's in your business or whatever it is, is the last possible thing that you want to sort of concern yourself with. Because if the semantic understanding is wrong, it doesn't matter where you put it. I'm chuckling because it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? We have to think about what it means. Engineer before you manufacture. In our world, it would be architect before you implement. So the concepts of data bigness, big data, we can get there. But we can't get there by just mushing stuff together. We have to look at these things that were never engineered in the first place, figure out if we can do something with, with them. And if we can, then we need to go through the structure to look at A and B and see if they're the same thing. And if they're not, what are we going to do? But just bringing these things together aren't going to make it happen. And the second lesson we have to learn is the lesson about big data, big data. And as we found since the 30s, the quantity of data can't you know, be the only issue. It's essentially, is there bias? Is there sample size issues? And that has to do with essentially the concept of designing experiments when you're going out there. So the quantities of data aren't as important as the quality of data. And we're going to suggest to you that there are methods, processes, approaches that will get us there. And we'll refer to those generally in the data world as one portion of the concepts of enterprise architecture. Reification, enterprise architecture, the keys to making sure that the data that you're using in your enterprise and the conclusions you're drawing have validity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the 2020s Enterprise. Any questions, please email me at sam at eacoe. Be more than happy to eacoe.org. More than happy to answer them. We'll see you next time. Have a great day, and thank you for your comments.